Listener Production. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, a behind-the-scenes look at the facility on the outskirts of Sydney where scientists are studying human remains. We study how the human body breaks down and how we can use that to solve a whole range of questions around a legal investigation. Dr Micah Newland is the Deputy Director at the Australian Facility for Taphonomic Experimental Research. AFTER is a facility run by the University of Technology in Sydney, which allows researchers and scientists to perform tests and experiments on bodies which have been donated. They were seeing victims in vehicles after several days, weeks, months, and wanted to get a better understanding of what type of evidence might still be survivable. We'll explore how it all works and how bodies wind up at AFTER, and even learn how you could donate your own body to the facility. Before we do, let's explore how AFTER is helping police and law enforcement solve crime and contribute to successful convictions. I often get questions around, isn't it horrible? Isn't it a lot of goriness? It's really not um, what we do. There's definitely some elements we are looking at decomposing human remains, but the reason why we're doing it is is for a good purpose. So there's a, a proper reason for it, uh, and it's not just gore for gore. And, and actually, it's really nice out at the facility. Can you tell us about the facility? The sort of colloquial term is, thank you, Patricia Cornwall, the body farm. And I've even seen in Australian, it's very much American reference, but I've seen in Australian terms, the body farm, Australia's body farm. But how do you describe after? So I'm I'm not a fan of the term body farm. I know it's super catchy, so people are going to keep using it. But for me, we call it a taphonomic research facility. It doesn't have the same ring to it. Hey, you're not going to see a book <laughs> called the taphonomic research facility. But what we do is we study how the human body breaks down and how we can use that to solve a whole range of questions around a legal investigation. How did the first facility start and where? The very first facility was started over in the US and it started because there was a case uh, where a forensic anthropologist, an expert in the US uh, who's used a lot by law enforcement, uh, he was asked to assist on a case and ended up having the time since death quite significantly off. And from that realised that we just don't know enough about how the body breaks down or conditions that might preserve a body to be able to assist law enforcement. So he started the very first facility over in the US, uh, I think we're about 40 years ago now. Um, was it Bill Bass? Yes, so that's that's William Bass. Uh, so he was the, started the first one. And then since then, we've had uh, a few in the US. And it's always been a US-centric kind of facility. There hasn't really been any other ones in the world. We were the first ones to open a facility that was outside of the US. And we opened in 2016, so actually quite recently. So what prompted Australian 
governments, forensic teams to want to open a facility in Australia? Because there was a need for it. So we have these facilities in the US, but because of the way climate, the area you're in, the type of vegetation, the scavenger population, because they really influence the way a body breaks down, we couldn't just take the data from the US facilities and use it for cases here. So we really needed to have our own facility to understand how does the body break down in an Australian environment and more specifically because that's where we're located in a Sydney environment. How large is the facility? 120 acre of land, but the facility itself is about 10 and a half acres uh, that's fenced in. So it's, it's fairly well secured. It looks like a prison from the outside, essentially. Uh, and we got uh, security surveillance cameras all around the perimeter and inside the facility, all to make sure that the privacy and the respect of the donor is being maintained. So what happens when somebody dies and they've elected to donate their body to after? What is the process? There's a form that they will sign up. Uh, So ideally, the donor will be uh, already on our database when they pass away. And the nurses uh, or the hospitals or the family members, they will know this. We will be notified and then we make the arrangements to get the, the person out to the facility. It still goes through a funeral home. So they do all the transport because legally they're the ones that can transport human remains. But all the paperwork and everything else gets uh, organised by us. So then what happens? Do you have demand in certain experiments or certain situations that you want to fill? Or do you look at a person and say, this is the best situation to experiment with that shape or age? Or We usually have projects that are, are on a waiting list. So projects that have been approved by an ethics committee, they've been approved by uh, an after committee that we have that just looks over the scientific validity to make sure that this is something that's worthy of a donation because it's it's a massive thing. It's a fantastic gift for a researcher to be given a donation like that. Uh, so we then have a list uh, and then we'll allocate to the project that's first on the list or if there is a project that needs specific requirements, We'll check against the requirement. If they're good, we'll give the donor to them. If not, we'll jump down the list. Have you set up the um, experiment already or does the body have to be refrigerated until it's ready? So we, we say that any researcher that goes on the list of saying, I'm ready for a donor, they need to be ready to drop everything in 24 hours and have their research start. For us, it's really important to get that first period after death because there are a lot of changes. So we want to monitor that as best as possible and get the donation out to after as quickly as possible and have the research start. So normally within about 20 minutes, the body's already starting its decomposition process. It's not obvious to the naked eye straight away, but particularly in the elements, it would be more obvious. So does refrigerating a body then affect your results? It does, yes. So we refrigerate the bodies as they're transported to try and, and slow down because what a uh, cold climate does or just having a, a body in a freezer, in a fridge, it slows down the decomposition process because it's preventing the bacteria from working away. But we try to prevent that period from being too long until they come out to the facility and we can start monitoring. There's a lot of different types uh, of research that's being done We're in a few different areas that are key areas. 
One of them being search and rescue. So looking at methods that we can develop or evaluate to use to search for missing persons, for example. And then once they've been located, we deal with methods on how to best recover the victim, any type of evidence, because uh, that's quite important as well, especially in, in a grave scenario where you might have a, the law enforcement will dig up the body and, and be really focused on the victim, whereas the grave itself might hold a wealth of information. So we want to do training to show, okay, here is what you need to look for uh, and how you go about it to make sure that you're really getting the most out of the recovery. And then we have another big area, which is in time since death. Time since death is one of the biggest challenges in forensic science on TV, and it drives me nuts. Uh, it looks so easy. You have uh, the coroner or the pathologist, whoever it is, will come out, usually someone with glasses and or in a suit, the white coat, they'll have a lab coat out in the field for some reason. Uh, they'll look at the body, maybe do a touch a little bit, look around, they'll be like, oh, yep. This person died Tuesday at 4 p.m. It's more the rectal thermometer that <laughs> determines the time. It's this degree, so they've been out here for this long. I always marvel at that. I think that's brilliant writing. I, I wish it was as easy as it was on, on TV. Uh, it would make my life a lot easier. Because they look and go, there's lividity, there's that the blood settling, or they weren't, they weren't from this position because they died this long ago when they've been moved. They're absolute geniuses or psychics yeah. on television. So some of those methods we do use, but it's certainly not as precise as what it is on TV, especially if someone's been uh, deceased for a longer period of time. It's actually quite tricky. So once we move beyond weeks and we go into months to years, it's really tricky with the methods that we currently have to determine exactly when the person died. And it's such a key piece of information that you really need to to work the case around because it's really the starting point of the case. You need to know when did the event happen so that you can then speak to witnesses. Who can be on the suspect list, who's excluded from the suspect list. Exactly. So time since death, is it's a major pillar in an investigation. And unfortunately, we still don't have a really good method for determining time since death that's very accurate beyond weeks. Can you give us some examples of some of the research projects that are going on and how they apply in the real world in terms of forensic science and crime? Yeah, uh, we've got um, a project at the moment that's being run looking at mass disaster events. So that's a, a big activity that we do where we will simulate disaster events like an earthquake or a building collapse. Um, Explosion. Explosions. Uh, with explosions, just because of our, our ethics, we won't actually have the bodies in a vehicle, but we might uh, blow up a vehicle and then place donors inside. Uh, so I will take law enforcement agencies, I'll take them out and I'll show them surface indication, for example. I'll do a lot of teaching on time since death. What are some of the indicators that we're looking for? And how do you best recover individuals? So we'll do training where we have uh, individuals in a grave and we'll have Law enforcement, forensic agencies come out and they'll excavate the body and any type of evidence that we've placed in there to, to try and make sure that uh, they're covering uh, all of their bases. And also the disaster events that I mentioned, at the end of the disaster period, so we usually leave the bodies there for about two weeks so that we can test all of the different techniques 
a lot of disasters you won't have access immediately because it's a really dangerous environment. So you don't want to take any living individuals in to go searching. So in a lot of cases, you don't actually get access to the bodies for a while. So that's why we have that longer period of time. And at the end of those exercises, we'll bring uh, law enforcement, first responders, forensic services. We'll have a massive training exercise uh, that spans across several days where first responders will come in. They don't know anything about the scenario, so they don't know how many bodies, they don't know where they are. And it's their job to search for them and any evidence that we plant in the scenario as well. They'll go through a whole recovery exercise where we have uh, a mobile morgue on site as well. And we'll have forensic services come in, take uh, DNA samples, uh, fingerprints, see if we can do facial recognition and dental uh, as well. So as much as possible as we can do to try and improve the way we respond in a disaster event. We do uh, a lot of mass disaster. We've been running them now for the past five years where we have uh, a number of donors in a disaster scenario and we'll try and monitor what's happening. So we'll see how the decomposition progresses because it's quite different than in, for example, a body that's just on the surface uh, because we might have several victims together in something we call commingling and that's going to affect how the body breaks down compared to how someone's by themselves will break down. And that's going to be important for us to know when it comes to the recovery and to determining what techniques we're going to use for identification, for example. We also do a lot of looking at different search techniques in those scenarios. So what are some of the methods that we can use to quickly find victims so that these can be recovered and you can get answers to family members that are anxiously waiting one of that is looking at cadaver detection dogs, for example. The dogs will come in uh, and they'll run over this, the area and try and see if it, they can locate the victims. We also use portable technology. So we've developed uh, an electronic nose that we're trying to get uh, as good as the dogs. Uh, the dogs are really, really fantastic at what they do, but they're quite costly. And unfortunately, they cannot tell us exactly what it is they're doing or what they're scenting. So we're also trying to chemically determine the smell that comes off the victims to then develop portable technology so we can, in the future, get some drones out to, to go searching. How on earth do you robotically detect the smells, the gases? This is what I'm, I'm thinking. You then somehow put pipes down and capture those gases over a period of time. There's a few different ways you can do it. So we've done a lot of investigating into what the smell is like. And the way we do that is we'll have a body on the surface and we'll place a hood on top that's completely containing and then trying to accumulate the air. So we want the air to kind of concentrate and, and grow in there. Uh, and then we'll use these specialist tubes that we fit on top of the hood and then we'll actively draw air through them. And with the air, we also draw the scent compounds. And then the scent compounds will stick to the tube and we'll take it back to the lab to analyse it. So obviously you're doing this at various stages as well. I do then put it through a spectrophotometer or something to work out what chemicals specifically are in that gas mix? Yeah, so we use something called uh, gas chromatography mass spectrometry, uh, just an advanced, more advanced version of it. And what that does, it will take the scent that we put in 
it will break it up into its different parts, and then it's going to tell us exactly what those parts are. So much like having a cake in reverse, for example. So we have a, a finished cake, we'll put it into the instrument, and we'll come out with flour, sugar, egg. And then we investigate what these compounds are and how they change over time. So what your robotic, or, or in theory, your dog knows, and then your robotic dog knows, is it detecting specific or any of these? So we pick uh, biomarkers that we're looking for based on what we know about the human scent. So say, for example, we know that there's uh, a lot of methanol, for example. So let's take a, a simple compound. Methanol, we know there's methanol in this and this stage. So after a week, after two weeks, we'll get methanol. So then if we have a scenario where we're looking for deceased individuals that may be around that time period, we'll say, okay, so we need to have an electronic nose that can pick up methanol. So that's a, it's a very simplified uh, version of it. But what we're doing is we do a lot of analysis on the surface bodies, uh, on buried remains, on remains in different scenarios, capture the chemical smell, and then we'll use that to train the, the police dogs, but also train electronic nose technology. I've often heard people say there's a smell of death. I know people who've sort of walked past a building and said there's death in there and then seen a body being removed. Do you agree with that, that there's a smell of death immediately after someone takes their last breath as well? Not immediately after, but there's definitely a very specific smell uh, of a body that's breaking down. And it's unlike anything else, I think. And I've smelled roadkill and we do some research comparing animals, especially pigs, to humans. Uh, and that's because pigs have been used as models uh, for a lot of years in these forensic types research. And it smells different. Uh, it's a very specific smell that I, I know quite well. Hard to explain, but... You know it when you smell you, it. You know it when you smell it. And uh, I had a friend uh, that once uh, came to me and she's like, I think something's wrong. My apartment smells like your samples. And I said, please call the police if they do. And she ended up uh, having it. The neighbor had passed away. Uh, so it's, it's a very specific smell that once you know it, um, it's, it's recognizable, I think. In terms of criminal activity, how does that help? The identification side of things uh, is something that we've been involved in before. So identification, you normally have to do uh, DNA or uh, the facial recognition or teeth or fingerprints to get a very secure and confirmative identification. But what we can do with the clothing uh, is we can get preliminary identification uh, if we know what the person was wearing uh, and we know what's been found in, for example, the grave and we know how broken down it is. We know roughly how long that piece of clothing has been there. Uh, so that can assist with telling investigators that they likely have found uh, the victim that they're looking for and then further testing can confirm or deny that. In terms of your contribution to cases, I know that you prepare court reports. Can you give us an example of something that you've prepared that's actually contributed to a criminal case? So I can't give any specific case uh, information, uh, but I can say what I have assisted with, uh, which has been giving evidence on where you might locate a missing person. So where they might be located what are some of the indicators in the environment to look for, especially if you're looking for a grave 
what are some of the the things that in nature you can look for that has changed because the body has been present and breaking down there. So things like the vegetation, the soil type, markings that you might find from scavengers. Something like um, Malcolm Naden, who took police back to a spot he says he buried someone seven years earlier and they couldn't find. Is that the sort of thing that you would advise on? Yes, so that might be one thing where they have uh, an area they think it might be uh, or they'll find potentially a, a piece of bone and they're trying to look for where would the rest of the body be, especially if it's something that's uh, there's water on one side and land on the other and you're trying to figure out, do I go water, do I go land? That might be something that we would be able to advise on. And then because of all the work we do with our scent detection dogs, or the I should say law enforcement scent detection dogs, Uh, They're not ours. Uh, But because of the work we do with them, we also can advise on when it's best to bring them out. When are the dogs going to have the best chance at finding a missing person? Under what circumstances would you write a court report with this information? So with the information, that would be in your... The search, we don't really write court reports on. Uh, We might write a little advice. um, But what we do get involved with the courts in is more when we're looking at time since death. So although I said earlier that we are pretty bad at it, there are still techniques that we can use to give estimates. And I'm sometimes asked to give estimates for when we believe a person died. There seem to be, uh, in Australia, it seems, there are more and more bodies being hidden in containers. There are suitcases, barrels. There have been a number of high-profile cases. Is some of the research looking at concealment? In the very beginning, when we opened the facility and we put the first few bodies down, we realised that they weren't breaking down as we expected. Uh, So we'd done work with pigs for years and knew roughly what to expect, we thought. Uh, and then when we opened the facility, we found that it was, it was quite different. And we get a concept, uh, a process that we call mummification or mummification of tissue, which is when the skin gets dry and leathery and it tends to preserve the breakdown of the body. And we were finding that this was happening in our facility throughout all seasons. Everything we tried, we were getting this. So we have only, to get back to your question, we've only now recently started looking at more scenario-based type research because we had to spend the first few years just getting a baseline understanding and a really good understanding of how the body breaks down just naturally without any other intervention. What do you think was causing the mummification? The sort of, it's, as I understand, it's like the waxy, soapy sort of substance. So the, the waxy soapiness, that's adipocere. So that uh, is more a pres- preservation that we see when we have wet environment. So you see that a lot in water. If you have individuals that have come from a, a shipwreck and they'll have reports of what they look like, they'll usually say that there is this soapy protective material. Desiccation or mummification is the opposite. So instead of it being wet, we have dry. So a lot of direct sunlight and really dry environment will help promote that. So how do you go setting up after? 
obviously you need donors. Where do you find them and how does someone consent? I know the, one of the worst things I ever had to do in medicine was not just tell a family someone was dying or had died, but then ask for organ donations. And even if the person had said, that's what I want, the family could override that decision and deny organ donation. So how on earth do you get donors for your facility? So donors come to us. Uh, We don't really advertise or anything like that, but we've done a lot of awareness about what the facility is about, what we're doing, and that's led to quite a few people signing up to be a donor. Do you find it's people who perhaps can't do organ donation because of cancer or chemotherapies and things that they've had? We get a little bit of that, um, but I think it's just in general people really appreciate what we can do out at the facility and how we can help solve future crime and prevent future crime. Uh, So I think a lot of people are going, this is a a potential option for them to kind of contribute after death. And you may or may not want to answer this, but does it matter in cost of a funeral being so expensive? Is it an alternative? It's a tricky one. Um, We do, if we do get next of kin donations, we do do a bit of a screening to try and figure out uh, what the reasons are uh, and to really make sure that if it's a next of kin donation, that there's proof that this is what the person wanted in life. And does it have to be that they specifically, instead of just donating their body to science, the broad term, that they actually want to donate it to after? Yes. So we have a, a very specific consent for coming out at after. We have a body donation program at UTS. So we have a few different options. We have that generic donate to science, uh, but then we have a specific box for after where we say, I would like to donate for taphonomic research. Uh, and we have a little bit of a blurb about what that actually entails. I imagine some academics would perhaps want to contribute to research. Do you find that? I find not just academics. I find um, teachers, I find nurses, uh, a whole range of different people in the area where the facility is located. Uh, I've done some talks in that area and they're quite proud of the facility and the fact that it's there. And I've got a, a few of them that are listed on our donor database. Obviously, there can be lots of issues raised about treatment of remains and respect. And that's why we usually have funeral services and burials and rules regarding that. How is ethics affecting what you can and can't do? It's a major part uh, of the way we operate. So we are governed by the Anatomy Act. So anything that happens with with donors in in any space falls under that legislation. Uh, And then we also have ethics approvals outside of that that are very specific to the type of work we can and cannot do at after. And we also have a committee that I mentioned earlier where we have a representation from every single partner organization that are, are out at after. Uh, And we go through every single project that's being approved to see whether it's uh, uh, scientifically sound, uh, because that's a major part of it. And we want to make sure that it's research for not just research for research sake, but actually has a purpose. And then we look at the ethics of it. Uh, So we look whether we believe that is something you can ethically do. So we have a a lot of constraints that we're working within, which I, I believe is a good thing. And what sort of what are some of the restrictions placed on you? Well, scavenging that I mentioned earlier would be one thing because of legislation stating that uh, we need to know where every single body part is at all times. 
we won't do scavenging on the humans. That's why we use the pigs uh, as our models for that. Uh, and then it just comes down to what type of projects we can and cannot do. Trauma-related activities, for example, is something that we haven't been doing for the past seven years, but it's something that we now have the ethics approval to do. So that would include like a bushfire simulation, but that requires specific consent from the donors themselves. Uh, so we have a, a lot of constraint around what we do to make sure that everything runs in an ethically and proper manner. Importantly, respecting the donor's wishes. Yes, definitely. So respect for the donors is the pillar of what we do. And it's really important. Um, and we do a lot of training with people out there to make sure that everyone is behaving in an appropriate manner and that every under everyone understands the amazing gift and just the, just the fact that someone has decided that uh, we get to do research using their body after death is such a major gift. Uh, and we want to make sure that that's being acknowledged. And we always need to remember that every person out there is someone's loved one. Uh, it's someone's dad, someone's mom, someone's sister, brother, child. So we want to make sure that every single donor is treated with the utmost respect with everything that we do. So if somebody does want to donate, what should they do? If they want to donate, a quick Google search of after UTS uh, will take you to a link uh, to our body donation program. Uh, so we have a unified program for all the work we're doing at UTS. But if you specifically want to come to after, then there's just a, a little tick box uh, extract that needs to be selected. This has been so fascinating to go through what is actually a taboo subject for a lot of people. And I understand that um, you could be reticent about talking about it. So thank you so much for sharing all this information and the progress and the contribution that you and your colleagues are making to forensic science. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me. Uh, and just on that um death being a taboo is also something that we're trying to overcome. We're trying to, to show that a lot of beauty can come from death and there can be a lot of uses uh, that can save someone else's life in the future, potentially. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.